Hello, everyone. I'm Alan, bringing you this episode of the Talks at Google podcast. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode of this podcast is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. This episode is with Stephen Arthur Pinker, Canadian-American cognitive psychologist, linguist, and popular science author. He is a Johnstone family professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University and is known for his advocacy of evolutionary psychology and the computational theory of mind. If you think the world is coming to an end, think again. People are living longer, healthier, freer, and happier lives. And while our problems are formidable, Pinker believes the solutions lie in the Enlightenment ideal of using reason and science. Is the world really falling apart? Is the ideal of progress obsolete? In this elegant assessment of the human condition in the third millennium, Pinker urges us to step back from the gory headlines and prophecies of doom, which play to our psychological biases. Instead, follow the data. In this talk, Pinker illustrates that health, prosperity, safety, peace, knowledge, and happiness are all on the rise, not just in the West, but worldwide. This progress is not the result of some cosmic force. It is a gift of the Enlightenment, the conviction that reason and science can enhance human flourishing. Here is Steven Pinker, Enlightenment Now, the case for reason, science, humanism, and progress. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. It's nice to be back at Google. From time to time, we all ask some deep and difficult questions. Why is the world filled with trouble? How can we make it better? How do we give meaning and purpose to our lives? Well, as imponderable as these questions may seem, many people have ready answers to them. <laughs> For example, morality is dictated by God in Holy Scriptures. When everyone obeys his laws, the world will be perfect. Or, problems are the fault of evil people who must be shamed, punished, and defeated. Or, our nation should claim its rightful greatness under the control of a strong leader who embodies its authentic virtue. Or, in the past, we lived in a state of order and harmony until alien forces brought on decadence and degeneration. We must restore the society to its golden age. Well, what about the rest of us? Many people uh, are pretty clear about what they don't believe, but have much more trouble putting their finger on what they do believe. In Enlightenment Now, I suggest that there is an alternative system of beliefs and values, which uh, we can more or less associate with the Enlightenment. Namely, that we can use knowledge to enhance human flourishing. Many people already embrace the ideals of the Enlightenment without being able to name or describe them. And as a result, they've faded into the background as a kind of bland status quo or establishment. The other ideologies have passionate advocates, and I suggest that Enlightenment ideals, too, need a positive defense and an explicit commitment. And that is what I have tried to do in Enlightenment now. The Enlightenment ideals uh, center on four themes, reason, science, humanism, and progress, let me say a few words about each. It all begins in reason, uh, with the understanding that traditional sources of belief are generators of delusion. <clears throat> Faith, revelation, tradition, authority, charisma, mysticism, intuition, the 
hermeneutic parsing of sacred texts are always of going wrong. Reason, in contrast, is non-negotiable. As soon as you try to provide reasons why we should trust anything other than reason, as soon as you explain why you're right, why other people should believe you, that you're not lying or full of crap, you've lost the argument because you have appealed to reason. Now, as a cognitive psychologist, I would be the first to acknowledge that human beings on their own are not particularly reasonable. As a species, we are likely to generalize from anecdotes. We reason from stereotypes. We seek evidence that confirms our belief, uh, beliefs and blow off evidence that disconfirms them. And we're all overconfident about our knowledge, our wisdom, and our rectitude. But people are capable of reason if they adopt certain norms. Free speech, open criticism and debate, logical analysis, fact-checking, and empirical testing, which leads me to the second Enlightenment ideal, science. Science is based on the conviction that the world is intelligible and that we can seek to understand it by formulating possible explanations and testing them against reality. Science has shown itself to be our most reliable means of understanding the world, including ourselves. An important Enlightenment theme is that there can be a science of human nature, and that beliefs about society are testable, just like any other beliefs about the world. Science, moreover, gives us not just technical know-how, uh, but fundamental insights about the human condition. Naturalism. The universe has no goal or purpose related to human welfare with the implication that if we want to improve that welfare, we have to figure out how to do it ourselves. Entropy in a closed system, one without input of energy, disorder increases. Things fall apart, stuff happens. Not because the universe has it in for us, but because there are vastly more ways for things to go wrong than to go right. Evolution. Humans are products of a competitive process, which selects for reproductive success, not well-being. As uh, Immanuel Kant, that great Enlightenment thinker, put it, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no truly straight thing can be built. The third theme is humanism, that the ultimate moral purpose is to reduce the suffering and enhance the flourishing of human beings and other sentient creatures. Well, enhance uh, human flourishing, who could be opposed to that, you might think? Well, in fact, there are alternatives to humanism, such as that the ultimate good is to enhance the glory of the tribe, the nation, the race, the class, or the faith, to obey the dictates of a divinity and pressure others to do the same, to achieve feats of heroic greatness, or to advance some mystical dialectic or struggle or pursuit of a utopian or messianic age. Humanism is feasible because people are endowed with a sense of sympathy, a concern with the welfare of others. Now, by default, our circle of sympathy is rather small. We tend to feel the pain only of our uh, close relatives, our friends, our allies, maybe cute little furry baby animals, uh, and that's about it. But our circle of sympathy can be expanded through the processes of cosmopolitanism, the mixing of people and ideas, education, journalism, art, mobility, uh, and even reason. As soon as you engage in uh, discourse with someone else, uh, I, I can't, can't insist that my interests count because, and yours don't, because I'm me and you're not, and hope for you to take me seriously. 
reason inherently presupposes a symmetry among those engaged in it. Uh, finally, we get to progress, that if we apply knowledge and sympathy to reduce suffering and enhance flourishing, we can gradually succeed. Now, you might ask, if human nature doesn't change, how could progress even be possible? And an answer from the Enlightenment is that it's possible through benign institutions, which allow us to deploy energy and knowledge to push back against entropy, to magnify the better angels of our nature, as Abraham Lincoln called them, such as reason and sympathy, while marginalizing our inner demons, our biases, illusions, our tribalism, our thirst for dominance and vengeance. What do I mean by Enlightenment institutions? Well, some of the brain children of the Enlightenment that we continue to enjoy today include democracy, declarations of rights, markets, organizations for global cooperation, and institutions of truth-seeking, such as academies, scientific societies, and a free press. So, 250 years later, how did that Enlightenment thing work out, you might ask? Well, I found that if you ask most intellectuals, the answer is not very well. Because I have found that uh, intellectuals tend to hate progress, and intellectuals who call themselves progressive really hate progress. <laughs> if you think we can solve problems, I have been told, that means that you have a blind faith and a quasi-religious belief in the outmoded superstition of the false promise of the myth of the onward march of inevitable progress. You are a cheerleader for vulgar American can-do-ism with the raw-raw spirit of boardroom ideology, Silicon Valley, <laughs> that would be you, and the Chamber of Commerce. You are a practitioner of Whig history, a naive optimist, a Pollyanna, and of course a Pangloss, alluding to the Voltaire character who declared all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Well, as it turns out, Professor Pangloss is what we would today call a pessimist. A true optimist would believe there can be much better worlds than the one that we find ourselves in today. But this is irrelevant to the question of whether progress has taken place, which is not a attitude, it's not a uh, optimistic temperament, it's not wearing rose-colored glasses, it's not seeing the glass as half full or half empty. It is an empirical hypothesis. Human well-being can be measured. Life health, sustenance, prosperity, peace, freedom, safety, knowledge, leisure, happiness, if they've increased over time, I submit, that would be progress. Well, let's go to the data. Beginning with the most precious thing of all, life. For most of human history, life expectancy at birth hovered around 30 years of age. But then, with advances in uh, public health and medicine, such as vaccination, sanitation, antibiotics, blood transfusion, and so on, life expectancy at birth has increased to more than 71 years. That is the global average over uh, all of humanity. Virtually no one guesses that it is that high. In developed countries, like those in Europe and America, it is over 80 on average. And in other parts of the world are catching up, including Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. For most of human history, the biggest contributor to low life expectancy was child mortality. Indeed, 250 years ago, uh, a, uh, no more than one-third of Swedish newborns lived to see their fifth birthday. 
Sweden brought its rate of child mortality down by a factor of 100, and other uh, parts of the world followed suit, such as in uh, the Americas, Canada, in uh, East Asia, South Korea, in Latin America, Chile, and in Sub-Saharan Africa, Ethiopia, which has brought its rate of child mortality down from 25% to 6%, still too high, but the uh, progress is continuing. Mothers, too, were vulnerable every time they gave birth. About 1% of Swedish mothers died in childbirth uh, 250 years ago. Sweden brought that down by a factor of 250, uh, as have other countries uh, such as the United States, Malaysia, and Ethiopia. Health. Uh, the biggest traditional killer of humans was infectious diseases, no longer a major killer in rich countries, but still uh, a major source of uh, morbidity, mortality in the developing world, especially among children. But the five most lethal infectious diseases for children have all been in decline over the last 15 years alone. Pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria, measles, and HIV-AIDS. Sustenance. It takes about 2,500 calories to feed a, a young adult male, and for most of human history, countries were not able to grow enough calories to uh, feed their population. Then with the British agricultural revolution in the 18th century, the, uh, with advances in agronomy like crop rotation, later the development of synthetic uh, fertilizer, the cultivation of vigorous hybrids in the Green Revolution, transportation networks that could bring food from uh, uh, farm to table. Uh, first England, then other developed countries like the United States and France grew enough calories to feed themselves. More recently, China and India have done so, and there you have the graph for the world as a whole. Now, this would be a dubious form of progress if all of those calories were just making uh, fat people fatter. Uh, but in fact, they have uh, been reducing the rate of undernourishment, which just 50 years ago afflicted about one-third of people in the developing world. That has fallen to 15%, first in Latin America, then in Asia, and it's uh, beginning to happen in sub-Saharan Africa. And as a result of all these uh, calories, uh, deaths from famine, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which could strike any part of the world and, uh, and, and bring devastation in its wake. It has become rare. Famines today occur not because of an inability to grow enough food, but be, uh, an inability to get it to people in remote and war-torn regions. Prosperity. Uh, poverty, as economists say, needs no explanation. What needs an explanation is, uh, is wealth. Uh, for most of human history, pretty much everyone was uh, poor. Uh, this graph shows the gross world product from the year one to the year uh, 2015, a recent date. And as you can see, for about 1,600 years, uh, economic growth was less than one pixel high in the graph. Uh, but then with the Industrial Revolution and the spread of education, advances in technology, financial institutions like banks and markets and contracts, then uh, uh, expansion of global trade. Um, gross world product has increased by almost 200-fold um, since the early 18th century. Uh, the great escape, as the Nobel Prize-winning economist Angus Deaton calls it, from universal uh, poverty was highly uneven over the regions of different regions of the world. It was countries like uh, the UK and the US that first escaped from uh, background 
squalor. Uh, but other countries now are catching up, such as South Korea and Chile, and China and India are showing exponential growth as well. Here's the graph for the world as a whole. Now, again, this economic growth would be a dubious form of progress if it was all going just to the proverbial 1%. But in fact, it has taken a massive toll on extreme poverty, uh, defined nowadays as $1.90 per person uh, per day, 2015 uh, U.S. dollars. By that criterion, 200 years ago, 90% of the world lived in extreme poverty. That has fallen to less than uh, 9% today. In fact, there's been a 75% reduction in ex extreme poverty just in the last three decades. Uh, as a result, international inequality, which necessarily increased as a few countries uh, underwent the Industrial Revolution, leaving the rest behind, has turned a corner and is now starting to decline because poor countries are getting richer faster than rich countries are getting richer. Now, of course, within developed countries, inequality is increasing, not decreasing. But that doesn't mean that rich countries have become increasingly uh, callous to the plight of their uh, needy. Uh, quite the contrary, uh, whereas uh, 150 years ago or so, uh, European countries allocated no more than 1.5% of their GDP to social transfers, to children, to the sick, to the elderly, to the poor. In the 20th century, every developed country went on a massive expansion of social spending so that today the median OECD country redistributes 22% of its economic activity in social transfers. Uh, as a result, when, Poverty, when it is measured after these transfers, after taxes and transfers, uh, has come down from about uh, one-third of Americans in 1960 to uh, 7% today. And when poverty is uh, also take, takes into account consumption, the food, clothing, and shelter that people can afford to, to buy, it has fallen from about 30% in 1960 to less than 3% uh, today. Peace. For most of human history, the natural state of relations between empires and countries was war, and peace was merely a brief interlude between wars. You can see this in a graph that plots for 25-year uh, periods the percentage of time that the great powers of the day, the 800-pound gorillas, uh, the major uh, states and empires, were at each other's throats in major wars. And what it shows is that a few hundred years ago, the great powers were pretty much always at war with each other. Today, they are never at war with each other. The last great power war pitted the United States against China in Korea more than 65 years ago. Now, if we zoom in on the 20th century, we see that even as uh, wars were becoming shorter and less frequent, the, they were also becoming more destructive in a uh, dubious form of progress. Countries were getting uh, better at killing more people in a short amount of time, culminating in the massively destructive world wars. But contrary to predictions that I grew up with, that it was only a matter of time before uh, we would see a third world war pitting the United States against the Soviet Union and fought with nuclear weapons. We now know that the Soviet Union went out of existence mostly peacefully, the Cold War ended, and World War III uh, never happened. In fact, if we look at the post-war period since 1946 uh, we, and look at 
the number of people killed in battle from all wars combined, not just the great power wars, but smaller interstate wars, civil wars, colonial wars, we see that from a rate of the, in the late 1940s of about 20 per 100,000 per year, the rate has fallen uh, dramatically, though highly unevenly, to less than one per 100,000 per year. You can see uh, peaks in the graph for the uh, Korean War the, and the uh, Chinese Civil War in the late 40s, early 50s, the Vietnam War in the 60s, the Iran-Iraq War and the uh, Afghan Civil War in the uh, 80s, but, and then a small bump for the Syrian Civil War in, the, uh, in, in um, uh, this decade. But overall, the uh, trend, though a bit of roller coastery, is unmistakably downward. For this, we might uh, point to a number of factors. Uh, the uh, growth of democracy, because democracies are statistically less likely to fight each other. The growth of uh, trade, because trading partners are less likely to go to war. You don't kill your customers. You don't kill your, your, uh, your, your debtors. And if it's cheaper to buy stuff than to steal it, you have less of an incentive to, uh, to, to plunder. Uh, also to international institutions, yeah, particularly the United Nations, which has um, enforced a uh, outlawry of war. War is uh, literally illegal, which was not true for most of human history. It used to be that might made right uh, to the victor went the spoils. Uh, but it, since 1945, there have been very few annexations, conquests, or states that have gone out of existence through conquest. Not zero, but uh, a fraction of what went on before. And also probably a general uh, greater valuation that countries place on uh, human life compared to national preeminence and glory. Politicians are a little more uh, squeamish about sending their uh, uh, young men uh, to become cannon fodder. Freedom and rights. We have all watched with alarm as democracy has been eroded in countries like uh, Turkey, in Russia, in Hungary, in Venezuela. Nonetheless, if you scale every country uh, in terms of how autocratic or democratic it is and add them all up, you see that the world has never been more democratic than it has been in the last decade. And even the erosion of uh, democracy that we read about in the headlines has taken us back to where we were in about 2010. Uh, in uh, 200 years ago, the number of democracies in the world could be counted on the fingers of one hand. Now a majority of countries are more democratic than autocratic, and a majority of people live in countries that are more democratic than autocratic. And if this seems just incredible, uh, Keep in mind that just when I was a student, the world, an undergraduate, the world had 31 democracies. Uh, half of Europe was behind the Iron Curtain and ruled by totalitarian communist dictatorships. Uh, Spain and Portugal were literally fascist dictatorships. Greece was under the control of a military junta, the colonels. Most of Latin America was under the control of military or right-wing autocracies. In East Asia, South Korea, Taiwan, Philippines, Indonesia, all of them dictatorships, all of them democratic uh, today. There have also been curtailments in the power of states to brutalize their citizens. Uh, it used to be that pretty much every country practiced capital punishment, but uh, the uh, overall trend is to, for countries to abolish it. Most recently, um, Malaysia, just uh, a month or so ago. Uh, on average, in the, over the past couple of decades, three countries a year have abolished capital punishment. And if you 
extrapolate the curve, always uh, dangerous, uh, capital punishment, though, would uh, disappear from the face of the earth uh, by the end of the uh, coming decade, joining other institutions that have uh, more or less been permanently abolished, such as human sacrifice and uh, chattel slavery. Also, country after country has decriminalized homosexuality, again, uh, by, by no means all. But just in the last year, countries as diverse as Lebanon, India, and Trinidad and Tobago have decriminalized homosexuality. Child labor. Uh, it used to be standard practice for people to send their kids to work in farms and factories. Uh, as any reader of Dickens knows, uh, about 30% of English children 150 years ago were uh, uh, set to work. Um, England and the United States and other European countries have drastically reduced, almost eliminated child labor, thanks to the uh, increased premium that we place on education. Uh, so children are more valuable in school than, uh, than working in, in the fields or factories, and a general increase in valuation of the lives of children. Here we have uh, graphs for the world as a whole. Uh, the uh, in 2015, the Nobel Peace Prize was shared by Kailash Satyarthi for his efforts to reduce child labor. And as these graphs show, the efforts uh, are bringing real results. Violent crime. In any part of the world that exists in a state of anarchy, it is easy for there to be uh, predation by individuals or gangs, often followed by cycles of revenge and vendetta and blood feud. In Medieval Europe, for example, the uh, homicide rate was on average about 35 per 100,000 per year. But as uh, kingdoms started to exert their control over the medieval uh, patchwork of uh, fiefs and baronies, uh, every European country brought its homicide rate down to now Western Europe has a rate of about one per 100,000 uh, per year. And that's a process that tends to be replicated in any part of the world where the rule of law is exerted over frontier regions, and the code of vendetta is replaced by police and court system and rule of law. It happened in colonial New England. It happened in the American Wild West, where the uh, old cliche in the cowboy movies was, uh, the nearest sheriff is 90 miles away, so a man has to be able to defend himself with a six-shooter. And even in the countries that are notoriously still violent today, such as Mexico, the uh, homicide rate was about five times higher a century ago. Uh, if we zoom in on the last 50 years or so, uh, we see that the United States, after undergoing a boom in violent crime from the 60s through the uh, early 90s, has brought its homicide rate down by half, and the world as a whole has reduced its homicide rate by almost 30% in the last couple of decades. Uh, it's not just homicide that has been in decline, but violence against women, such as domestic violence against wives and girlfriends, and rates of rape and sexual assault, down by about 75% since the FBI first uh, kept records in the early 1970s. And uh, victimization of children, despite the um, scary headlines that we read about bullying and cyberbullying, the rate of victimization of children at school has come down, as have rates of physical abuse and sexual abuse. Indeed, we've been getting safer in just about every way. Uh, because of technological advances in the safety of cars and in the design of safer highways, your chance of getting killed in a uh, car crash have fallen by 92%. Uh, 
uh, we are uh, 88% less likely to be mowed down on the sidewalk, 96% less likely to die in a plane crash, 59% less likely to die in a fall, 92% less likely to drown, 90% less likely to uh, die in a fire, 92% less likely to be asphyxiated. There is, however, one exception to the trend of uh, increasing safety, and this is the category that safety statisticians call death by uh, poison, solid, or liquid. It includes drug overdoses, and here you're seeing the American opioid epidemic, a uh, severe and uh, tragic counterexample to the uh, overall trend of increasing safety. At the same time, we're 95% less likely to die on the job. We're even less likely to die in a so-called act of God, a earthquake, uh, wildfire, uh, volcano explosion, meteor strike, uh, drought, uh, uh, flood, presumably not because God is any less angry with us, uh, but because of improvements in the resilience of our infrastructure, in the ability to forecast natural disasters, and in emergency response systems. And what about the quintessential act of God, the literal bolt from the blue? Yes, we are 96% less likely to die from a bolt of lightning. Knowledge, natural state of humanity is to be illiterate and ignorant. Uh, 500 years ago, literacy was a perquisite of a fortunate wealthy few. About 15% of Europeans could read and write at the dawn of the Renaissance. Uh, most European countries achieved universal literacy by the early uh, 20th century. And uh, the uh, rest of the world is now uh, rapidly catching up. In fact, uh, the most recent figures show that 80% of the world can read and write today, 90% of people under the age of 25. Not just men, but women. Uh, whereas uh, 250 years ago, uh, only six British women could read and write for every 10 men who could, but uh, Britain achieved gender parity in literacy by the uh, turn of the 20th century. And the world is very, very close uh, to gender parity. Even the most backward countries when it comes to educating girls, uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, have shown uh, steep increases. And this, of course, is a kind of progress that we associate with the other winner of the 2015 Nobel Peace Prize, uh, Malala Yousafzai. And in perhaps the most incredible, astonishing, difficult, difficult to credit example of progress uh, that I have come across, we have been getting smarter. This is true in a uh, well-documented phenomenon known as the Flynn effect, IQ scores increased by about three points a decade throughout the 20th century a result of uh, presumably advances in public health, uh, the spread of education, and possibly the trickle-down of technical and abstract concepts from science and tech and academia into everyday life. Well, does this improve the quality of our lives? I've gone over a number of things that economists like to measure, but uh, do they actually increase, uh, improve life as it is lived? And in many ways, uh, they have. For example, uh, 150 years ago, the average work week in the United States and Europe was 62 hours. Uh, that has fallen to less than 40. And uh, on average, uh, Americans and Europeans get at least three weeks of paid vacation, which would have been 
pretty much inconceivable in the 19th century. Uh, and thanks to the universal penetration of running water and electricity and the widespread adoption of labor-saving devices, uh, washing machines, vacuum cleaners, refrigerators, dishwashers, stoves, and microwaves, the amount of our lives that we waste on housework, which people indicate is their least favorite way of spending their time, has gone from uh, more than 60 hours a week to less than 15 hours a week. Because of the shortening work week and the uh, amount of our lives that we reclaim from housework, the amount of leisure time that Americans report has uh, increased over the last 50 years, both uh, men and women. Now, you can't help but notice that the uh, leisure time for women kind of plateaued and even sank a bit starting in the 1990s. And the reason is that women today spend more time with their children. That uh, the, a single working woman today spends more time with her children than a married stay-at-home mom did in the 1950s. So forget Leave it to Beaver, forget Father's Knows Best, and now is the era in which uh, families spend time with each other. Uh, we also fork over less of our paychecks to necessities from 60% uh, a century ago to less than one-third uh, today. Ultimate question, does it make us any happier? Uh, what good would all these advances do if uh, people did not experience it as greater happiness in their lives? The answer is, in, um, on average, uh, it does make us happier. There is a pretty strong relationship between life satisfaction and GDP per capita. This is plotted on log coordinates, so the relationship in reality is highly uh, curvilinear, that is, a dollar uh, means a lot more to a poor, pers poor person than to a rich person, but it holds across the income scale, both across countries, uh, each country in this graph indicated by a dot, so people in richer countries are more satisfied with their lives, and within countries, as indicated by the regression line, the, the arrow impaling each dot, within countries, uh, people with more resources express more satisfaction with their lives. This leads to the expectation that as uh, the world gets richer, its people ought to get happier. Now, we don't have data on happiness that go back more than a few decades from most countries, but what data we have show that uh, more than, in more than 70% of countries for which we do have longitudinal data, uh, happiness has, has uh, increased. Interestingly, the United States is not one of them. Our uh, happiness level has declined a bit, but the United States started out as a pretty happy country. And contrary to a, um, a, a story that I am often confronted with, that suicide rates are spiking, the reality is that suicide rates are uh, plummeting. Uh, suicide rates globally are down by almost 40% over the last uh, 30 years or so. In a majority of countries, uh, again, the United States is not one of them. We hit a, uh, a kind of a low point in uh, 1999, and the rates have been creeping up. But the United States is uh, by no means an outlier in suicide rates, and the increase that you read about is measured from one of the low points in 1999. Suicide rates in the United States were far higher in the, during the Great Depression and during uh, the early decades of the 20th century. Has this progress come at the expense of the environment? And the answer is, obviously, it has. Uh, 
the, uh, as we have extracted energy to improve our own uh, well-being, it has come at, at a cost in pollution and species extinction. Um, however, there is a, um, a, a well-documented relationship uh, between uh, economic uh, growth after a certain point and concern with the environment. As countries get rich enough, their uh, thoughts turn to the environment. They can afford uh, cleaner energy, more pollution control, and their values tend to shift from survival and comfort uh, and uh, economic necessities to protecting the environment. The United States, for example, since the passage of the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts and the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency around 1970, uh, even though uh, population has increased by 40%, GDP has increased by a factor of two and a half, Americans drive twice as many miles uh, as they did in 1970, but the rate of emissions of the five uh, major pollutants has declined by 60%. So contrary to uh, widespread beliefs, both from the uh, hard libertarian right and the hard uh, anti-growth green, uh, it, it, according to which uh, you can have economic growth or improvements in the environment, but you can't have both. In fact, uh, you, uh, you can have both. And there are other aspects in which the uh, environment is rebounding. For example, in the temperate world, deforestation has been in decline and now is going into reverse as farms have been abandoned and are being reclaimed by forest and new forests aren't cut cutting, being cut down to, uh, for farmland. In tropical regions, this is not uh, true. Deforestation continues, but still it is uh, well past its peak and it, uh, uh, with the, the right efforts, could continue to come down. The uh, amount of the Earth's surface that is protected against economic exploitation has doubled from 7% to 15%, as has the amount of the uh, uh, ocean cover, ocean surface that is uh, protected from 5% to, from 6% to 12%. And the biggest driver of uh, environmental uh, degradation, namely human beings, uh, contrary to fears that human population would just grow exponentially uh, forever, human population growth peaked in 1962. And projections that take into account the fact that when countries get richer, better educated, and women are empowered, they then women start to have uh, fewer babies, uh, those projections would predict that uh, global population will peak at about 9 billion in 2070 and start to decline, as we have seen in almost every developed country, and uh, po population growth rates are falling in uh, poor countries as well. Well, I hope you can have convinced you that progress is not a matter of looking on the bright side or seeing the glass as half full. It is a demonstrable empirical fact. How is the fact of human progress reflected in the news? Well, in an uh, analysis using a, uh, a simple form of sentiment mapping, that is just tallying up the proportion of positive and negative emotion words, um, the uh, data scientist Khalid Litaro has shown that over the past seven decades, a period in which the world has become richer and more peaceful and safer and better educated and happier, the New York Times has gotten increasingly morose, and a sample of the world's broadcast has gotten glummer and glummer as well. So why do people deny progress? 
Uh, part of the answer comes from an interaction between the nature of cognition and the nature of journalism. Uh, according to uh, the uh, uh, hypothesis of an availability heuristic from Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tursky, people tend to estimate risk according to how easily they can recall examples from memory. That is, we use our brain's own search engine as a shortcut to estimating risk, probability, and danger. Uh, for example, people judge that uh, tornadoes kill more people every year than asthma attacks, presumably because uh, tornadoes make for really gripping television and asthma attacks not so much. In reality, uh, more than 40 times as many people die from uh, asthma attacks. In fact, consider the, uh, the nature of news. News is about stuff that happens, not stuff that doesn't happen. You never see a journalist saying, I'm reporting from a country that is at peace, uh, or a city that has not been attacked by terrorists. Uh, if those uh, uh, regions expand, we have no way of knowing about it. Uh, also, uh, news is about sudden events, not gradual changes. Uh, as the economist Max Roser pointed out, the papers could have run the headline, 137,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, every day for the last 30 years. But they never ran that headline with the result that a billion and a quarter people escaped from extreme poverty and no one knows about it. On top of these built-in biases that are just part of the very nature of journalism, there is also a, um, an attitude among many journalists that their mission consists of shaking people out of their complacency with, uh, with negative news, that positive news is corporate PR or government propaganda or uh, um, feel-good stories, like, um, um, puppy befriends orangutan or uh, single uh, cop buys groceries for a single, single um, welfare mother, uh, satirized in a headline from the satirical newspaper, uh, The Onion, CNN holds morning meeting to decide what viewers should panic about for the rest of the day. <laughs> Uh, as a result, you can see why the world is coming to an end uh, and always has been. Uh, also, uh, there is a negativity bias that is built into all of us. Uh, psychologists have shown that bad is stronger than good, psychologically speaking. We think about and feel bad events more than good ones. Uh, we dread losses more than we look forward to, to uh, gains, uh, especially when it comes to recent events, where uh, even if we remember bad events from the distant past, we tend to forget how bad they were uh, at the time. Uh, captured in a saying from pa Franklin Pierce Adams, nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. Uh, also, there is uh, market competition among would-be prophets. Uh, pessimism sounds uh, serious. Optimism sounds frivolous. Uh, as the musical satirist Tom Lehrer once put it, always predict the worst and you'll be hailed as a prophet. Well, let, me, uh, let me end now with three questions about progress and enlightenment that I suspect have occurred to many of you. Uh, first, isn't it good to be pessimistic, to safeguard against complacency, to rake the muck, to speak truth to power? Well, not exactly. It's good to be accurate. Of course, we must be aware of danger and risk and threat and suffering and injustice wherever they occur, but it's also 
crucial to be aware of how they can be reduced, because there are dangers of fact-free pessimism. One of them is fatalism. If you think that all of people's attempts to make the world a better place have failed, and that things get worse and worse no matter uh, what we do, the natural response is, uh, well, why throw good money after bad? Why waste time and money on hopeless causes? And if you think that we're doomed, that if climate change doesn't do us in, then runaway artificial intelligence will, then the natural response is, well, let's uh, let our grandchildren worry about it. There's nothing we can do about it. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, there's another danger to thoughtless pessimism, and that is radicalism. Because if you think that all of our institutions are failing and beyond all hope of reform, you'll be open to calls to smash the machine, drain the swamp, burn the empire to the ground, or to uh, empower a, uh, an aspiring leader who promises, only I can fix it. Uh, second question, is progress inevitable? And uh, again, the answer is, of course not. Progress does not mean that everything becomes better for everyone, everywhere, all the time. That would not be progress. That would be a miracle. And progress is not a miracle. Progress consists of using knowledge to solve problems. Problems are inevitable, and solutions create new problems which must be solved in their turn. Also, uh, even against a backdrop of steady improvement, the world can uh, be blindsided by nasty shocks and surprises, and I've mentioned or shown a number of them. The World Wars, the 1960s crime boom, AIDS in Africa, and the American opioid epidemic. Uh, and uh, there, the world has uh, severe challenges now that it has not yet solved. Foremost among them are climate change and the threat of nuclear war. I suggest in my analysis of these uh, challenges that we treat them as unsolved but potentially solvable uh, problems, that we should deal with climate change by decarbonizing the world's economy as rapidly as possible by a combination of uh, policy uh, measures, uh, primarily carbon pricing and uh, technological measures, uh, that is the development of low, zero, and eventually negative carbon uh, technologies, including both uh, present and new generation nuclear, and that we uh, denuclearize uh, the uh, arena of international relations by first enhancing strategic stability to uh, minimize the chance of, a, uh, of an uh, accidental or uh, unwanted uh, nuclear war, and by programs of arms limitation and uh, reduction culminating eventually in global zero, the total abolition of nuclear weapons. Now, this used to be a concern of uh, eccentric bearded professors and peaceniks and folk singers, but it has been embraced by some of the most hawkish of the Cold War hawks, uh, such as Henry Kissinger, uh, Sam Nunn, George Schultz, and uh, William Perry. And just a couple of uh, hints that these are not utopian, uh, romantic, uh, inconceivable uh, aspirations. Uh, the world's um, uh, economy has been undergoing a natural process of decarbonization, or at least carbon intensity, that is how much CO2 has to be emitted to produce a dollar of economic value. As countries, uh, industrialized countries, uh, first uh, industrialized and burned massive amounts of coal, they are CO2 emissions uh, shot up. But then as they switched to lower carbon uh, energy sources, to 
petroleum, to uh, methane, to uh, hydro, to nuclear, uh, to renewables, the uh, carbon intensity declined. Uh, China underwent a uh, more lurching version of this process with uh, spikes that actually shoot up off the top of this graph because of the uh, Mao's great leap forward in which peasants had to set up backyard smelters which produced massive amounts of CO2 with zero economic output until China came to its senses. Uh, and India has turned a corner as well as has the world as a whole. Now, this does not mean that the world is on track to dealing with uh, greenhouse gas emissions for two reasons. One of them is that though this is a measure of how much CO2 you have to emit to produce a, a given amount of economic value, the amount of economic uh, output has, uh, is uh, shooting up, a, a good thing. Uh, plus, it's not enough for this uh, emissions to be uh, reduced. They have to go to zero and eventually negative. But what it does show is that that uh, econ modern economies are not inherently tied to flaming carbon. And few people realize that the size of the world's nuclear arsenal has been uh, reduced by about 85% since the uh, peak during the Cold War. Uh, indeed, almost 10% of American nuclear um, uh, elect electricity generation comes from reprocessed um, fuel from nuclear weapons, the ultimate uh, beating of swords into plowshares. Uh, this development is, needless to say, highly threatened right now, but what the graph shows that is that it is possible. Final question. Does the Enlightenment just go against human nature? A, uh, a uh, poignant question to me as a prominent defender of the very idea of human nature. And uh, people have asked, um, is humanism just too tepid? arid or flattened to get people's uh, hearts pumping? Is the conquest of disease, famine, poverty, violence, and ignorance boring? Do people need to believe in miracles, a father in the sky, a strong chief to protect the tribe, myths of heroic ancestors? Well, <clears throat> that's not so clear. Uh, we have uh, found that secular liberal democracies are the happiest and healthiest places on earth, and they are the top destination of the people who vote with their feet. And uh, I would argue that applying knowledge and sympathy to enhance human flourishing is heroic, glorious, maybe even spiritual. Uh, unlike hero myths, uh, this one is uh, not a, a, a myth. Myths are fiction. This one is true true to the best of our knowledge, which is the only truth we can have. And it is a hero story that belongs not just to one tribe, but to all of humanity, to anyone with the power of reason and the uh, drive to persist in its being. For it requires nothing more than the convictions that life is better than death, health is better than sickness, abundance is better than want, peace is better than war, freedom is better than coercion, happiness is better than suffering, and knowledge is better than superstition and ignorance. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, one of the questions is, it seems like there is a strong desire on the, both the left and the right to regress back to pre-enlightenment and more authoritarian values. Can you articulate what are the enlightenment values and why they're worth defending? What are the Enlightenment values? And oh, uh, oh, that's easy. Uh, the Enlightenment values, uh, uh, as I would just tell them, would be reason, science, and humanism. 
and they're worth defending because they have led to progress. That is measurable, uh, empirically demonstrable progress. The progress that we've made across the past few centuries is undeniable from the empirical evidence, and the value of the Enlightenment uh, principles is also, I believe, beyond question. But not all progress has been made through those principles. For instance, chattel slavery in the United States was not uh, ended by free speech. It was ended by war. Uh, the Civil Rights Act passed in the wake of civil disobedience of varying levels of nonviolent and violent protest. And of course, we're in Pride Month, so it's important to remember the first Pride was a riot. What do you think? What was a riot? First Pride pro uh, pro uh, celebration was oh. the Stonewall oh, Riots. Stonewall, okay, yes, for, for gay pride. Yes. 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 So, what role do you believe the intentional focused application of entropy plays in a world <laughs> which values the Enlightenment principles and is dedicated towards progress? Yes. Well, some, some kinds of progress did require um, struggle, conflict, violence. Um, although, uh, in many cases, the mobilization of people to struggle for some cause depended uh, on ideas, on new ideas that often were articulated by philosophers, by, uh, by thinkers that were circulated in coffee houses and salons and, uh, uh, and libraries and uh, schools and universities. Martin Luther King, for example, uh, was um, in his pilgrimage to nonviolence that uh, noted that among his influences were the Enlightenment philosophers, uh, the more liberal branches of Christianity, which in turn had been influenced by Enlightenment thinkers, and of course by uh, Gandhi and the um, uh, ideas of, of uh, nonviolence. So ideas uh, motivated that kind of uh, struggle. Also, it's um, although in the United States there was a civil war, lots of other countries got rid of slavery without it. And the civil war, uh, one of the, the, in fact, the worst, uh, most violent war in American history, 650,000 deaths, uh, it was um, perhaps not the only, or uh, hard to say whether it was the uh, only way that slavery could have been eliminated, but uh, I come from Canada. Uh, Canada and the British Empire eliminated slavery without a civil war. So we don't know. There may be cases where uh, struggle and violence are the, the uh, only way to achieve some social goal, but uh, uh, in many cases not. There was a, a uh, the, the Stonewall riot did happen. It, it uh, uh, probably uh, uh, was not the main instigator of the uh, advances in gay rights, I suspect, uh, which, which uh, came later. And of course, other countries did not necessarily need, need rights. And as far as violence goes, this was pretty small stuff. I don't, don't think anyone was killed in the Stonewall riots. There were some injuries. Um, and other, uh, 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 many Improvements in human well-being, such as the Green Revolution, the development of uh, 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 antibiotics and vaccination, had no violence at all. Uh, uh, and as Gandhi and King showed, and as my colleague Erica Chenoweth has recently documented quantitatively, uh, you even in cases where there is entrenched opposition, so that some kind of conflict is inevitable, uh, the nonviolent resistance movements on average are more um, successful than the violent ones. Uh, that is surely in achieving their goals. They're twice to three times as successful. And often uh, movements that achieve their goals through violence carry a legacy of violence thereafter that at least 
uh, allows one to, to, to question the price. The United States is uh, probably the most violent uh, Western democracy, and it came into existence through, through uh, uh, violence. Countries that become independent in violent revolutions are less likely to become democratic. So it's a, a complicated uh, relationship. And in, in general, I tend to uh, believe that the less violence and the less struggle, the more successful the revolution. In most parts of the world, life expectancy has increased, but in the U.S., life expectancy is starting to decline in certain areas. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so in the, again, progress doesn't mean that everything gets better everywhere for uh, all the time. Uh, and the, there's a slight decline in life, American life expectancy, almost entirely explicable by the, um, uh, what Angus Deaton and, and um, uh, his collaborator Case call uh, deaths of despair. These tend to be baby boomer, mostly male, mostly white, uh, mostly rural, mostly less educated. So these are the victims of deindustrialization and disinvestment in American rural areas. And indeed, it is a, a, a tragedy that has that is big enough in magnitude to drag down the overall average by uh, by a little bit. Um, and it's uh, clearly something that we have to uh, address. Um, so, uh, and again, if you break down any data on progress. To a granular enough level, there will always be parts of the world that are going in the wrong direction. So, just some, just a way of a part of the appreciation of progress is not to be shocked if it doesn't occur uh, everywhere uniformly. It never never does. And but the progress can uh, continue, resume, be accelerated if we concentrate exactly on the parts that are that are uh, not progressing, or in this case, regressing. Thanks for the uh, the presentation. It was, it was very uh, compelling. Um, one thing I'm curious about, so you mentioned uh, some of the alternate uh, interpretations or alternate kind of worldviews um, that uh, humanity um, is best with a kind of strong leader or with uh, or working towards like a, a living according to kind of transcendent ideals um, or also some like another worldview around uh, people are motivated by uh, or do best by when motivated by self-interest. I'm curious if... Um, uh, so... These are so, so for for folks that you're kind of talking with or debating, you know, they may be kind of coming or uh, advocating or articulating these ideas. I'm curious if um, uh, you've uh, looked into like some of the patterns under underlying why people will like arrive at these different kinds of worldviews. And in particular, I know there's been work in uh, adult psychological development, so tracking how people um, go through stages in terms of uh, the complexity of their thinking, the uh, like the uh, scope of of, what, of groups that they're able to empathize with. Is this have you evaluated any of this work uh, for kind of making sense of these patterns? Yeah, there is. Um, it is interesting to ask, you know, since uh, you know, if I'm right and cosmopolitan, liberal, secular humanism, enlightenment is such a great idea, why doesn't everyone believe in it? Uh, and um, I, I hope more and more people will. Uh, there are trends, uh, global trends, in the direction of cosmopolitan liberalism, though, again, um, uh, uneven with uh, exceptions. So the World Values Survey has um, asked people about a, a large number of questions about their political, uh, moral, and lifestyle values going back to 1980, but because of a discovery that they made, that these values tend to be largely uh, cohort effects, namely people born at a given time tend to keep them as they age, uh, you can extrapolate backwards 
uh, if you take into account both the cohort effect and uh, some of the nation-level effects. So you can almost extrapolate backward to 1960. If you do, you find that a uh, Christian Veltzel has uh, found that a composite of liberal, what we might call liberal values, that is respect for rights of women, for democracy, for um, uh, gay rights, rights of people to divorce, to um, child-rearing philosophies that emphasize creativity and autonomy rather than um, obedience. If you kind of put those together in, in one kind of uh, liberal value, you find that every part of the world, um, essential liberal values has increased over the last uh, 60 years or so. Now, the different regions of the world uh, show massive gaps. Not surprisingly, Sweden is more liberal than, uh, than the Middle East and North Africa. However, by many measures, um, a young person in Egypt today, for example, is more liberal than his counterpart in Sweden in 1960. Now, lest this seem absolutely incredible, imagine getting into a time machine, going back to 1960 and interviewing a, a typical, uh, a random Swedish person and say, what do you think about uh, two men being able to marry each other? Or uh, a uh, woman being the CEO of a corporation. Uh, they would have thought, you're nuts. That's impossible. That's, that's outrageous. That's against the natural order. Uh, and so when you think about how, uh, especially in the, the most illiberal regions, the fact that younger people are more liberal and cosmopolitan, it becomes less shocking. Now, the correlates of this gradual shift. Now, and this, by the way, is only as of uh, the 2005, 2008 or so. So I don't know if there has been gone into reverse since then. Uh, but that was over a span of, of uh, 50 years. Correlates tend to be um, affluence of the, of the whole country, uh, education, uh, information flow. Countries that are more, that translate more books, have more telephones, more internet connections, uh, the, that have more uh, patents, more uh, high, high degrees, that general knowledge intensiveness together with affluence and some other variables tend to tilt people in the uh, liberal, cosmopolitan, enlightenment, humanist direction. Uh, again, maybe it's all gone into reverse in the last uh, five or 10 years with the ascent of populism, um, too, too soon to say. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. And to discover more amazing content, you can always find us at youtube.com slash talks at Google or through our Twitter handle at Google Talks. Thanks for listening. Talk soon.